Well, Pope Francis and his friends in the hierarchy in Vatican City have declared war. Well, they've been declaring war over and over. But today they really declared war because it's just obvious that the suppression of the traditional Latin Mass and the Roman Rite is the agenda. They only want the Novus Ordo, the seven sacraments, according to them, must eventually, universally in the Roman Rite, be celebrated in the Novus Ordo. In full compliance to every jot and tittle of the Second Vatican Council will be enforced. This new document came out today and it clarifies 11 points. We're going to go through them today. For example, that con celebration will be required and enforced. What does that mean? Your traditional Latin Mass priest is going to have to go down with the bishop during Holy Week and say a Novus Ordo con celebrating with him and the other diocesan clergy. Priests are going to need permission, not just from their bishop, but from Rome, from the Pope himself, in order to celebrate the Latin Mass. There will be no more, if we read this literally, no more confirmations, ordinations, and the traditional rite. I hope that's not the case, and I hope another clarification comes along. But the plain reading does indicate that that will be the case. It also states that deacons and other lower ministers in the traditional Roman rite, subdeacons, acolytes, etc., will need permission from the bishop to function liturgically. It says priests cannot binate in both forms. We'll hopefully get to that. Um, and that these permissions that are granted by Rome and by the local bishop can and probably should be temporary until we can get rid of all these traditional Catholics. And my question today is where's the accompaniment, you Jesuits? James Martin gets a platform. James, Mar James Martin gets a pat on the back. If you are not only committing the sin of sodomy, but you're promoting the sin of sodomy, and you have no intention of living a sexually chaste life, as every single baptized person, me and all of us, are called to do, those people, according to the Pope, should not be judged. He says, who am I to judge? And they should get special ministries, special accompaniment. There was a big outcry last week. The Vatican took the New Ways page off the Vatican. They got upset. They brought it back. They apologized. They all get special treatment. But if you want to go to the Latin Mass, if you want to go to the Mass as your grandma and grandpa went to, you have to have all these canonical permissions. You have to have all these labels. You have to have motu proprios and clarification letters like today slapped upon you. If you're a Catholic priest and you think Lutheranism is awesome and you love Martin Luther, if you think that Martin Luther was a great reformer and he provided medicine for the church and he was right on justification, as Pope Francis himself teaches in public, well, that's just great. The Pope can put a statue of Martin Luther in the Vatican. He can put Martin Luther, the arch-heretic, on a stamp, a Vatican City stamp. But if you're a 
Catholic priest in the Midwest of the United States of America and you have 300 people wanting a Latin mass, you can't have it. You can't, you're bad. You need to be monitored. You need to jump hoops. If you're a German priest who's liberal and you want to give blessings to unnatural unions, blessings that have no liturgical form in the Catholic Church, Everyone in Rome just winks at that. He says, we really wish you wouldn't do it, but if you do it, who are we to judge? But if you're a priest in Germany who wants to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass or celebrate the traditional Holy Week, or you don't want to con-celebrate at the Chrism Mass, you need to be monitored. We're going to call you in. We have questions for you. Do you have your special permissions? Did you get your super faculties from Rome so that you can say the Latin Mass? Are you trying to say the Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo on the same day? That's not allowed. We need to know about that. Do you subscribe every jot and tittle, not to the Council of Trent, but do you subscribe to the Council, the Second Council, the Second Vatican Council? We're going to put the screws on those people. So today we're going to look at these clarifications. I'm also going to run this clip from Mel Gibson because it's got me thinking again about Quo Primum. Quo Primum was published in 1570 about the Mass. And Quo Primum says that the Missal of Pius V, which is the Tridentine Missal, which is the Mass that we attend at the traditional Latin Mass, it holds, the language is, in perpetuity. So before we pray, I'm going to pull up Mel Gibson. And I also want to note, as before we start this, I put a poll up. And I said, should Pope Francis be resisted openly by bishops, priests, and laity? And 93% of you said yes. And Pope Francis, as far as I know, in the last 500 years, is the most unpopular, unliked, unpastoral, unfriendly pope that has been in existence in the last 500 years. I mean, can you imagine going back 30 years and there's so many people who are disappointed, frustrated, and hurt by the Catholic Pope? All right, here's, here's Mel Gibson. There he is. Let me get him. Got to make this tighter. We got to get... Mel Gibson in here. Here he is. All right, Mel, take it away. He's going to talk about the persecution of traditional priests. Since the 70s, he's going to talk about quo primum. Are you ready? Take it away, Mel. Action. In the 70s, uh, old priests, good priests, who were uh, bullied and persecuted by their bishops. There was a ratchet of back then also, and it was because they, you know, they wanted to maintain what it was that they were ordained to do. They didn't want to go along with the, the new liturgy and the reforms of Vatican II and, uh, so that they were uh, really heavily leaned on. It was never abrogated, the old mass, never. And it still hasn't been. You can't. It's protected by quo primum. You hear that? Um, but they were bullied and, and bad. I'm going to play that back. The old mass, never. And it still has uh, really heavily leaned on. It was never abrogated, the old mass, never. And it still hasn't been. You can't. It's protected by quo primum. Um, 
but they were bullied and, and badgered and put in insane asylums and you know it, it was pretty sad to watch and uh, this kind of thing is now happening again so and how are we supposed to know the good guys from the bad guys well we were given a standard by which to judge them you know by their fruits you'll know them by their fruits all right there it is whatever you think about Mel Gibson I like him he's 100% on point here good priests since the 70s have been persecuted they've been kicked out of monasteries kicked out of well the 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 good nuns had to leave convents persecuted in convents good seminarians i've known some good seminarians orthodox guys masculine would be good biological fathers they say i want to be spiritual fathers they get weeded out all right i'm riled up today y'all about y'all about to get riled up i'm riled up all right, let's pray the Our Father. We're going to pay, pray it for Francis and for an end to this persecution of good people. Oremus. Nomini Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in Celi, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cello et in terra. Panum nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, et emite nobis debita nostra. Sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, Se libera nos amalo. Amen. Nomini Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right. Well, can the Latin Mass and the Roman Rite be abrogated? You just heard Mel Gibson say it couldn't. He talks about Quo Primum. But Benedict XVI said that it was not abrogated. And yet, here's Francis saying it can be. Which one is it? Which one is it? And if we can just ignore Benedict, as Francis is doing, why can't we just ignore Francis? And see, this sort of accommodation of trying to live a, a schizophrenic liturgical life where it's like, well, in the 1960s and 70s, we completely created new liturgies for all seven sacraments and a new liturgy of ours. And then people didn't like that. It's like, well, by the 19, late 80s, we're like, well, we can have both together. And it's just, well, which is it? This raises the question amongst the lady, well, is the old one better? Is the new one better? Are they equal? If they're equal, why did we change? Why would we go through all the trouble, all the heartache, and all the controversy, and all the infighting if it's just equal? It's the same. You know, it's like moving out of your house for two weeks and and uh, repainting your house the exact same color or painting it clear over what you had. It's like, what What changed? All right, what does this document say? First off, this is put together by Archbishop Roche. I've met Archbishop Roche. I've met Pope Francis. I think that puts, not that I know them intimately or personally, but I am probably one of the few commentators who have met them both. And my impression of Archbishop Roche, it was supposed to be a meeting with Cardinal Sarah, but he was busy, so we got Roche. And what I noticed about him is he was quoting Jungman as an authority. And Jungman is 
in my opinion, has been debunked, disproven. Jungmann was a liturgist who popularized a lot of liturgical scholarship that said things like, well, in the early church, you know, in their communal celebrations, uh, the celebrant would always be facing the people. And this kind of scholarship just kind of got cycled and cycled so that people, you know, by the 60s are like, they're just taught this in seminary. It's taught this in theological academies that, well, yeah, I mean, the scholars say that obviously the priest was just going to be facing the people. I mean, we we excavated a church and had a freestanding altar, and that proves that the priest was facing the people. But we've had so much more archaeology and liturgical scholarship that shows that that's not really the case. Humans kind of passe. But Roche believes him. And Roche, I remember saying things like, you know, liturgy as community and the importance of the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. And he was big on, he was really big on vernacular. And that's one of the sticking points we'll cover today is that this new clarification wants the vernacular used in the traditional Latin Mass, but not just like the Dewey Rames or, you know, the traditional texts that you find in your missals. No, no, no. They want you to use the translations that are used by the local conference of bishops. So we would have to use the USCCB, New American Bible. Don't get me started. I say NAB stands for not actually the Bible. It's a problem. But I'm disappointed that a man who would repeat the kind of, I'll just call them Vatican II talking points, as if they are scholarly and tight, um, as just the way things should be. So my experience of meeting with him and hearing him talk for an hour years ago and then reading this document, it's, too, it's a worldview that is consistent. There's a synergy there. And I think a lot of trads were thinking. And you'll remember, I got some flack towards the end of the summer. Do you remember when I started getting all kinds of flack from some other traditionalists? They were saying, well, I said, this response to Traditionis Custodis, that, well, let's just be nice. Let's just quote Vatican II. Let's just quote Amoris Laetitia. If we do all these things and we play patty cake, with Pope Francis and the Vatican guys, if we just play patty cake and appease them, they'll give us what we want. They'll give us a treat. They'll let us keep our Latin mass. And I said things like, they'll let us keep our lace and our buckled shoes. And this got people a little bit upset. I wasn't criticizing these things. I think it's fine. But when we fetishize the aesthetics without the substance of theology and dogma and morality. In other words, if we say we want to have our traditional Latin mass, but we will totally sell out on Amoris Laetitia and we will give um, communion to divorced and remarried people who don't have annulments as a form of accompaniment, and we will give them absolution if they're living an a active sexual life without an annulment. And we will do that if you let us have the Latin mass. And we will have altar girls and we'll do communion on the hand and we'll make all the compromises so long as we get to keep our latin mass and keep the trappings and the aesthetics to me to me 
that is completely selling out. We are Catholics first for the deposit of faith, the dogma of the faith, the doctrine. The Latin Mass enshrines it, protects it, leads us to it. But we can't trade one for the other. You know, that's like Esau trading his birthright for a bowl of soup. We have to have all of it. You've heard me say, we have to have traditional piety. We have to have traditional families. We have to have traditional liturgy. We have to have traditional morality. We have to have traditional dogma. We have to have traditional catechesis. We have to have all of it. We can't fetishize the Latin mass and give up the other things. So this whole idea or this compromise that some traditionalists were like, let's play patty cake with Francis and quote Amoris Laetitia and quote Vatican II and quote all these things and maybe, maybe, maybe we get to keep our TLM. No, I'm not interested in that deal. Deal or no deal? I'm like, no deal. You remember that show with the suitcases, the metal suitcases, deal or no deal? I'm like, I slam it down, no deal. I don't want it. I'm not interested in, well, if we just play patty cake with Francis, so when Francis comes over, we'll put out a statue of St. Paul VI, Pope St. Paul VI, and we'll put out an acoustic guitar, you know, get one of these acoustic guitars and kind of like maybe put it, you know, in the, in the uh, sanctuary when the inquisitors come from Rome to visit the trads. And um, what else? We'll put out um, copies of Vatican II on all the coffee tables and in all the rooms. You know, like how the um, in America we have what's called the Gideon Bible. I don't know if it's overseas, but in all, almost every hotel and motel in America, if you open the top drawer next to the bed, there'll be a Gideon's Bible. That's in America. Is that is that a thing in the live chat? If you're in another part of the world, is that a thing? Or is that just an American thing? You know, we're, we're not going to do like we're going to put a Vat copy of Vatican II in every seminarian's uh, nightstand. So when the inquisitors come like, oh, wow, well, they are reading of Vatican II. I mean, and there's a statue of, of Paul, St. Paul VI and uh, they have holy cards of St. Paul VI everywhere. And um, they're only wearing like eight inches of lace and not 16 inches of lace. I think they're. They're quite progressive. I think they're quite on board with the reforms of Vatican II. Let's let them keep their Latin mass. Yeah, but should we let them wear maniples? Nah, we can work on that. Maybe in five years we'll take away the maniple. Oh. Yeah, I'm not interested in that deal. And, no, and none of y'all should be interested in that deal either. Right? And that comes back to this thumbnail where you see Archbishop Lefebvre. I told you so. They were trying to make deals with Lefebvre in 1970 and 71 and 72 and 73 and 74 and 75. Things broke down in 75, 76 with Lefebvre because he would not make the deal. And the deal was, hey, just say one mass in the Novus Ordo, back down on some of these things on faith and morals, Back down on some of the stuff about, you know, rejecting ecumenism. I mean, we got to chill with some Hindus, some Buddhists. We got to praise the Buddhists. We got to praise the Hindus. Got to praise the Mohammedans. You know, sometimes you got to, you know, the ecumenists said, sometimes you, sometimes you just got to have a, an idol of a Buddha on top of the tabernacle. 
This is the kind of stuff they wanted to do in the 70s and 80s. And Lefebvre would not take the deal. And I'm not taking the deal. And I'm encouraging all of y'all out there, we're not taking a compromised deal. And what they're doing is they're dripping out the deal. Today, it's con celebration. If, you, if your priest won't show up and do a Novus Ordo con celebrated, you're canceled. That's the deal today. Well, maybe we should just patty cake. No, we're not going to patty cake. The next deal will be, well, you need to have altar girls at your Latin Mass. And then the next deal will be, well, you have to have communion in the hand at your Latin Mass. And they will continue to cut away with the deals. And that's why Mel Gibson is right. Maybe we just need to get back to quo primum. Let me read to you a section from quo primum. Quo primum, as I stated in the intro, is from Pope St. Pius V. It was issued in 1570. It's short. You can read it in two minutes. It's on the Vatican website. But here is the third to last paragraph by Pius V. And I really, I know some traditional, and I say, well, Taylor, I don't know if you can really appeal to quo primum. Even my good friend Ryan Grant's like, I don't know if we should be making arguments on quo primum. I'm just saying, I think it's binding in per perpetuity. And even if it's not, how can a future vicar of Christ go 180 degrees against a sainted pope like St. Pius V? Like, how is that even prudent? How is that even wise? How is that even wholesome? Here's what Pius V says, and it's pretty powerful language. Quote, Furthermore, by these presents, this law, in virtue of our apostolic authority, we grant and concede in perpetuity that the chanting or reading of the Mass in any church whatsoever, this missal is hereafter to be followed absolutely without any scruple of conscience or fear of incurring any penalty, judgment, or censure, and may freely and lawfully be used. Let me pause here. First off, he appeals by virtue of his apostolic authority. And then he says, in perpetuity. And he says, for the chanting or reading of Mass in any church, this missal is to be followed absolutely. Not partly, absolutely. Now, I can already hear the Jesuits saying, yeah, but Taylor... They had to add new feast days and new saints. Yes, of course. Over P Pius V knew there were going to be new feast days and new saints. As I mentioned, I think in infiltration, he himself added the feast after the Battle of Lepanto, the feast of Our Lady of Victory, which becomes the feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. So yes, obviously there can be new feasts, there can be new saints added to the Missal. But the Missal, meaning, you know, what you see, there's a, a ninefold Kyrie in the text of the Gloria and the place where the collect goes and the place where the epistle goes and the gradual and the gospel and the Nicene Creed and the, you know, the offertory, all that stuff in the missal is to be followed. Absolutely. It says hereafter to be followed. Absolutely. And he declares it by his apostolic authority in perpetuity. This is pretty heavy language. To come along in the 1960s and be like, eh, let's just throw away the whole missile. Let's write it over. I know it had a ninefold fold Kyrie. Let's do a six-fold Kyrie. 
I know it had a specific offertory. Let's create a different offertory. I know there was the Roman canon, which was hallowed by centuries over millennium. Hey, let's just write something on the back of a napkin. Pius, uh, probably, uh, yeah, Pius V goes on to say, nor are superiors, administrators, canons, chaplains, and other secular priests or religious of whatsoever title designated obliged to celebrate the Mass otherwise than enjoined by us. We likewise declare and ordain that no one whosoever is forced or coerced to alter this missile and that this present document cannot be revoked or modified, but remains always valid and retain its full force. This is big language. He's saying you can't alter the missile. The document, this document cannot be revoked or modified. It remains always valid and retain its full force. This is quo primum. This is why Mel Gibson says it's protected by quo primum. It's a strong argument. Does it hold? Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. I think maybe trads have abandoned that argument too quickly. Maybe we need to circle back and investigate it. Maybe Mel Gibson is correct. Everybody, your homework is go read Quo Primum by Pius V. Okay, so what happened? What were the 11 points in this clarification? First off, it said that a Latin Mass chapel or oratory can be erected by the bishop, but he needs approval from Rome. So if your local bishop, you go to your local bishop and you're like, hey, we have 900 people in our diocese that all want the Latin Mass. Can we have a Latin Mass parish or oratory? He goes, well, I'm going to have to get permission from the Vatican to do that. If you know anything about the Vatican, it's kind of like the DMV, but rooted in 2,000 years of history and all the offices close by 2 p.m. and people don't come back to work and nobody works most of the month of August. That's the Vatican. Getting things done and getting paperwork done is difficult. I know because I actually worked in the process. My first year as a Catholic layman after I was an Episcopal priest, I worked in the pastoral provision and we would send dossiers and stuff to Rome and wait to hear back. And sometimes it would take six to nine months to get something back. It's a very slow process. The second point in the clarification today is everybody is forbidden to use the Roman pontificale. What does that mean? Well, the pontificale is really, you know, you got the missal. We all know the missal. But then there's the pontificale. And that is the book used by bishops. It has the extra stuff in it. For example, confirmation and ordination, and I believe consecration of a church, and other such things. This document says that that is now banned. So on the face reading of this, unless there's a further con uh, clarification, this would mean that you cannot have confirmations, because that's a, a pontifical ritual in the Roman rite. Does this mean in the fraternity of St. Peter we won't have traditional confirmations. It'll be a Novus Ordo confirmation. No more 
slaps in the traditional confirmation. What about priestly ordination? Do all the seminarians in the fraternity of St. Peter and Institute of Christ the King awaiting ordination, and even ordinations in the minor orders, are they going to have to get Novus Ordo ordinations? How's that going to work out? And then a big question in my mind is, what about Cardinal Burke or Bishop Schneider when they, or Vigano, when they come, I think this applies more to probably Cardinal Burke because he's a cardinal, when he celebrates a pontifical high mass, that's pontificating. That's a, that's a specific liturgical form. Cardinal Burke doesn't just say the Misa Cantata that you see at your local fraternity of St. Peter. He's saying a pontifical high mass. Does that mean that he's not allowed to use the pontificale? These are questions that it seems they've given the answer, but it seems to raise a lot more problems. We're going to need another clarification. The third thing that's in this document is the coercion to con-celebrate. It states in Traditionis, and it states in this clarification, that priests, that the bishop is to ensure that the priest does not question anything in Vatican II, and that he accepts the liturgical forms of Vatican II, and that he will concelebrate in the Novus Ordo. If he won't, he loses his super faculties to say the Latin Mass. And this is another classic. Let me see if I got it here. It's another classic, I told you so, from, where is it? There it is. Another classic, I told you so, from Lefebvre. If you try to do micro deals, you end up losing the mega deal. And that's where this whole story's going. It's unraveling. The fourth thing is, Newly ordained priests need a, I'm calling it super faculties, because your faculties is the same ass to, you know, give absolution, but now you have to have the super faculty to say the traditional Latin Mass. That has to be getting, uh, gotten from Rome, from Francis. I mean, not probably personally from Francis, but it has to come from the Curia. Number six, it recommends that these, we might call them dispensations, indults, can and, and probably should be temporary because this clarification states explicitly that we should all move to one Roman rite, and they state that that Roman rite is the Novus Ordo. They have no intention of doing the B16 ordinary form, extraordinary form, by form compromise. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that Benedict bifurcated the Roman rite into ordinary form and extraordinary form, and then he, it seems, bifurcated the papacy. It's weird. Just weird, isn't it? Talk about it. Number seven. If you have a parish that has the Latin Mass and that priest dies or retires or moves on, you can't just bring in another priest to replace him. You have to start the process over and go to Rome and get special permission, super faculties from the Vatican. So what this does is, is it would pause 
your traditional Latin Mass parish. So let's just say you got St. Swithin's by the Swamp, and there's Father McGillicuddy there, and Father McGillicuddy has to retire, or he gets sick, or he dies. Well, you can't just bring in another priest the next Sunday, according to this. You've got to apply to Rome and say, well, we've got the young Father Smith, and he wants to replace him, and so I'm going to write to Rome, and then we're going to sit around and twiddle our thumbs. Meanwhile, the lay people are just like, what do we do now? There's no Latin Mass. We're waiting for Father Smith to get the super faculty. Number eight, as I mentioned before, de not just priests, but deacons and instituted ministers, which is the Novus Ordo way of saying minor orders, they also need permission, not from Rome, but from their bishop to participate liturgically in the traditional Latin Mass and in the traditional sacraments. So if a deacon were going to serve as a deacon in the Latin Mass, uh, he can't just show up. He has to have a special permission, a super faculty, as I keep saying. The next point is it's forbidden to celebrate more than one Mass. So if the priest in the morning says a Novus Ordo in the parish, if he's in a diocesan parish, and then later he wants to say a Latin Mass for another group of people or even by himself privately, that's not allowed. That's not allowed. You can't do that, according to the new clarification. Also, there is the need to get permission to celebrate the Mass outside your home diocese. So let's take uh, Father Smith again. Let's say he does have the permission from Rome to say Mass in the diocese of, let's just say, Houston, Texas. So he can do it every single day. He has the super permission, super faculties. But then he comes up to Dallas for the weekend. Maybe he's here for a weekend or something. He can't say the Latin Mass up here. Whereas under Sumorum Pontificum with Ben XVI, no problem. And then the last dubia, the last question, is the Roman Rite is banished from parishes to affirm that it is not part of the ordinary life of the parish. In other words, these can be temporary. And we're going to see that as we get closer to Holy Week, they're not going to allow Holy Week. We saw Cardinal Supich do this years ago, where he said, well, you guys can't have Triduum in the traditional rite. You have to do the Novus Ordo Triduum. And the people said, well, you gave us permission to have a Latin Mass parish. He goes, yeah, but Triduum shows the unity of the diocese. And, you know, y'all are doing a different liturgy, and that's kind of against unity. So you can't do the traditional Triduum. Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. No. Which kind of makes you wonder, like, well, aren't the Eastern Catholics doing a different liturgy and we're all united? See, these things are not consistent. These are not consistent. I want to read the text on just one of these because it's the wording is interesting. So the dubia, the proposed question is, if a priest who has been granted the use of the Missale Romanum of 1962 does not recognize the validity and legitimacy of concelebration, refusing to concelebrate in particular at the chrism mass can he continue to benefit from this concession the answer from rome is quote negative however before revoking the concession to use the missale romanum of 1962 
the bishop should take care to establish a fraternal dialogue with the priest to ascertain that this attitude does not exclude the validity and legitimacy of the liturgical reform, the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, and the magisterium of the Supreme Pontiffs, and to accompany him towards an understanding of the value of concelebration, particularly at the Chrism Mass, end quote. So here we actually do get some accompaniment. But the accompaniment requires the priest to grant a number of things. First of all, the validity and the legitimacy of the liturgical form, reform of Vatican II, the teaching of the Second Vatican Council and the magisterium of the Supreme Pontiffs, and to affirm the value of concelebration. Now, I'll tell you right now, my friends, I know dozens, perhaps at least 100 traditional Catholic priests. Most of them only say the Latin Mass. They do not say the Novus Ordo. I'm going to say I know easily, personally, over 50 traditional priests who do not say the Novus Ordo at all. And I know that I'm guessing 100% or 95% of them will not say the Novus Ordo and would not concelebrate at the Chrism Mass. I know that they would hold firm on it and they would not do it. And in my heart, I wonder what is going to happen to these good men. What's going to happen to these good priests? The bishop, probably not the bishop, probably some deacon or a vicar general or a chancellor is going to call him up and say, Hey, Father Todd, um, you know, I've just been thinking about you lately. And I was wondering if you could come into the office. I just wanted to talk to you, see how your priesthood's doing and you know, just catch up. And so Father Todd is going to come in and Deacon Larry, who's representing the bishops, could say, you know, it's kind of like the movie, um, is it Office Space? When they bring in those two consultant guys. It's like, yeah. We, we kind of noticed um, that uh, you haven't been showing up for a chrism mass in the last three years. So, uh, It'd be great if you could uh, if you could show up this year. And what's Father Todd going to do? You know, that's the hard question. Is he going to show up or not? Or if the bishop sends out a memo to the local fraternity parish that has two or three priests at it and says, I'm sure you saw the, least, the recent motu proprio and what Pope Francis is doing. We really look forward to having you at the Chrism Mass to con celebrate with us. Please RSVP with Karen, the diop, my secretary, um, for the after party or whatever, you know. <laughs> this is and these priests between now and Holy Week are gonna be sweating bullets. Are they all going to get diarrhea that week and not be able to attend? I don't know. I think the most powerful thing they could do is, and this brings me to my closing points, is to recognize and resist. That they would come together, they would unionize, even though I don't like unions, they would come together and say, um, we will not concelebrate. Just a complete and total sacerdotal flex. We're not going to do it. 
And that will be a powerful statement. This goes back to, are we going to play patty cake or are we going to negotiate as men with chests? Just say, we're not going to do it. Period. What are you going to do now? Are you going to suspend 500 priests? Are you really going to do that? I was surprised before this podcast, I actually went on like Yahoo News and a bunch of the secular news um, syndicators, newspapers, and almost all of them had a negative slant on this recent statement. Pope slaps down traditional-minded Catholics. Pope tightens screws on traditionalists. I mean, all of it was sort of, I was like, wow, I wonder why they're not painting this um, to make Francis look good. And I've also heard that a lot of bishops who are not traditionalist or not traditional, some of them aren't even cons what you would consider conservative, they don't like that Francis is pushing their hand to do these things. They might be not into the traditional at mass, but they maybe get along with them, appreciate it, value the presence in their diocese, and this is just creating paperwork and perceived animosity in their own diocese and in their own liturgical communities. The more Francis pushes this, the more obvious it becomes. Oh yeah, you can have a Pachamama idol in your liturgy and no one cares. But you want your 12-year-old confirmed in Latin using the old ritual, which if you read them side by side, the old one's better. Sorry, not sorry. You Suddenly it's like, well, do you accept the Vatican Council? Are you a schismatic? Are you a heretic? It's like, did anyone ever approach lay people and say, well, have you read the entire Council of Florence and do you subscribe to all every bit of it? I mean, of course we should do, we should subscribe to it, but it's like, since when are we saying, have you read this giant chunk of documents and do you, do you accept every jot and tittle in order to get these special canonical privileges? It's kind of ridiculous. So this is where we get to recognize and resist. If you've read my book, Infiltration, which you should read, it's an excellent book. It's well-researched. There's a lot of haters, but the haters have gone away over the last two years. Is there anyone who's a, leftist, a liberal, a modernist, who honestly looks us in the eyes in 2021 and says, there's no, there's no infiltration in the church. There, there are no financial scandals. There are no sexual scandals in the church right now. What are you talking about? The Vatican's run by a bunch of saints. Basically, we got incarnate angels running the Vatican. No, everybody knows. And it doesn't matter if you live in America or if you live in France, if you live in Germany, live in Italy, live in South America, Argentina, looking at you. We know that there has been infiltration in the church. And it's always been. There's a Judas Iscariot amongst the 12. There's always a Judas bishop and a Judas priest in the midst. 
Christ warned us of it because it is a present factor. To deny that there is infiltration is to deny the words of Jesus Christ because he warned us of wolves in sheep's clothing. He warned us of false messiahs and false Christ and false prophets. It's part of the gospel. If you read the four canonical gospels, you learn Christ himself is teaching us to be careful of evil leaders, evil shepherds, evil prophets. The end of this book, I say, okay, if infiltration is real, and it is real, what do we do as a solution? Let's just not be Debbie Downers. Let's not just point to the cancer and say, ah, you got cancer. Let's talk about treatments. Let's talk about solutions. Let's talk about being prayerful and active. And how do we react to it? So I go through a number of them. I said, you know, you could just say, well, God isn't real. You could be an atheist or an agnostic. You could say, well, I'm going to try out another religion. You could say, well, I'm just going to go with the sort of Protestant evangelical thing. It's just Jesus and me and my Bible. And that's it. I don't need a mass. I don't need liturgy. I don't need sacraments. I don't need a pope or cardinals or any of this stuff. I'm just going to keep it with me, Jesus, and a Bible. And I explain why that's not a good option. So you could just go Eastern Orthodox. You know, you got seven sacraments, bishops, beautiful liturgy, icons, cool architecture, great chant, all that. But there's also, but you have no pope. Like, well, I don't like Francis. So I'm going to become Eastern Orthodox. I explain in the last chapter of Infiltration why that's not the right answer. And then we kind of get down to three solutions, three answers that are before us today. One is to just say, well, Francis is the Pope. Let us not resist him at all. Let us follow him blindly. Whatever he says is true. And he is the oracle of the Holy Spirit. He is the vicar of Christ. And whatever he says on an airplane or in an interview, or in a meeting with Mohammedans, or whatever, that's, that's basically the Holy Spirit's voice, and we just should go with it. This is what I would call the naive, liberal, modernist take. And they're all the time in my comments and in the live chat. How dare you resist the Holy Spirit by saying Francis is wrong on X, Y, Z. I get that one a lot. The next one, so that's one. So you can remain Catholic, but you're just going to go, you're going to push all your chips on Vatican II, Francis, Pachamama, all that. The other one is Sede Contism, and I talk about that at the end of the book. The Catholic Church is real. The Catholic Church is true. She can never err. She's infallible. The papacy is infallible. Clearly, Francis and maybe Benedict and maybe John Paul II and maybe John Paul I and Paul VI and John Twenty-Third are heretical, have heretical tendencies. Therefore, I reject, this is the second, the Sede Contest, I reject 
all those popes as being popes. They're not popes. So I don't have to resist a valid pope. They don't want to, and that's kind of a Catholic sentiment, right? Well, if it's the vicar of Christ and he was elected by the cardinals and he's the bishop of Rome and the supreme pontiff, I don't want to resist him. That's like resisting God. So if they're not so hot, I'm just going to say they're not popes. Therefore, I'm not resisting a pope. That's the set of a contest. And of course, the set of a contest are always admit set of a conte, admit set of a conte. But there are some problems there. How do we know what happened in 1958? And how do we get back to having a real pope? These are real questions. And then we get to the solution that I follow, which is called recognize and resist. We recognize the local bishop. We recognize the cardinals. We recognize the Vatican. And we recognize the papacy and the pope. But just because we recognize them doesn't mean that we cannot resist them. And you say, well, Taylor, how is that so? And I say, well, let's go talk to St. Paul. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas, that's the Aramaic name, Kepha, Kepha for rock, for Peter. When Peter, when Cephas was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. In facium ei restiti. Because he was to be blamed. For before that, some came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them who were of the circumcision. And he goes on to explain more what happened. What happened is Peter, who's the Pope, there was a time where he was in Antioch. The tradition is, and I document this in my book, The Eternal City. Uh, there's a timeline in the back. The tradition is Peter... When they started persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem, Peter went to, in the book of Acts, another place. And that's code for Rome. He went to Rome. When he was in Rome, the emperor decreed and expelled all Jews because there was a fight over a man named Crestus, who I explained in the book is most likely Christus, Christ. He expelled all Jews from Rome. At that time, according to tradition, Peter went to Antioch and he took the papal see to Antioch, and he reigned in Antioch for a time. And then he went back to Rome, where he was bishop of Rome. And then he received the crown of martyrdom. That's the timeline. So during that time when he was in Antioch, some Christians come from James in Jerusalem, and they somehow put pressure on St. Peter, Cephas, Kepha, to have a two-tier Catholic church. You got... The upper tier, we'll call it Team A, is the Jewish Christians. And then Team B is the Gentile Christians. So you've got a double-decker Catholic church. And they're saying, look, Peter, you're like the chief of the apostles. You're Jewish. You were circumcised as a baby. You need to be part of the Jewish Catholic church. And then we can kind of have the B team, Gentile Catholic church. But we've got to keep this sort of segregation happening. When Paul came to Antioch, he's like, Peter, what are you doing? He resists him to the face. I withstood him to the face. Uh, does that mean that Paul was Protestant? Was he a Lutheran? No. Does that mean Paul was an Eastern Orthodox? No. Does that mean Paul was a set of a contest? No. It means Paul, 
who recognize Peter as his superior, as Thomas Aquinas teaches, still knew that when it came to faith and morals, and even here, example of the faithful, the inferior Paul could resist the superior Peter. And I believe that the Holy Ghost inserted this story into the Bible so that we would have this pattern for not only our time, but for all times in the church. So this shows that you can recognize the Pope, just as Paul recognized Peter's Pope, and yet resist him on something that is contrary to good doctrine, good morality, or good example. So I feel that you can say, I accept the Vatican. I accept the papacy and I condemn Pachamama as idolatry. And there is no contradiction in that as well. I think you can even go as far as to say, I accept John the 23rd and Paul the as Pope, but I do not accept the Novus Ordo. You can accept it as valid, but you can say, I think it's dangerous to the faith. I think it's abused. I think it's not in line with quo primum, as explained by St. Pius V. But there are some dangers there. There is some confusion there. There is some Protestant influence there. I think you can recognize the popes, and but you can also resist the popes. And it doesn't make you a bad Catholic. Because if it makes you a bad Catholic, it makes Paul a bad Catholic. But Paul is St. Paul. And the story is told in his epistle to the Galatians, which is read in the Mass. It's canonized. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. You can't reject it. So I would encourage those watching to embrace the recognize and resist position. Now, earlier I showed a clip from Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson follows the set of a contest reading, if I understand properly. Pardon me, Mel Gibson, if I, if I misunderstand you. By the way, I would love to interview Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, if you're watching, I'd love to talk to you even about this respectfully. So I understand that this is a very difficult time period to live in. It's not obvious. And I think, I've talked to a, a priest friend of mine, who says, I think the Holy Spirit, I think Christ the King, our Lord, for whatever reason, for some kind of chastisement or purification of the church, he doesn't want us to know what has happened and what the solution is. Yes, we have Fatima, but even the third secret of Fatima is under all of these veils and secrecy. We have Two men calling themselves Pope. Two men wearing white zucchettos and white cassocks. Two men giving apostolic blessings. Hmm? It's very confusing. This is why when it comes to Catholics and the traditional movement, I position myself, I hope you've observed this about me, I position myself in a latitude of charity. You often see me not being one to condemn the various 
interpretations. I have friends who are set of a contest. I have friends who are fraternity of St. Peter. I have friends who are society of St. Pius X. I have friends who are Institute of Christ the King. Um, I have friends who believe Ben XVI is the Pope. Um, all these different variations. I'm very slow to make condemnations because I don't have the answer and I don't know the solution. And I think that's part of just being little and small. That's all I got to say about that. All right, friends, let's pray our Hail Mary and uh, we'll pray for the state of Christ's holy Catholic Church. Nomine Patris et Fidei et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, or pronobis peccatoribus, nunc et or mortis nostre. Amen. Sancte Pie, decime, or pronobis, nomine Patris et Fidei et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right. Well, what else do I need to say? Hmm. Oh, yes, of course. Pray the rosary every day. If you don't pray the rosary, you're not on the team. You're not part of the solution. I honestly, when it comes to some of the debatable points, is there a pope? Is Benedict the pope? Is Francis the pope? Sede Vecante, whatever. I'm much more concerned with, do you pray the rosary every day? I mean, we know Mary's the Theotokos. We know Mary's the Immaculate Conception. We know she came down to Portugal and gave a message. Like, that's all public record, obvious, legit info. Meditating on the mysteries of sacred scripture and the Holy Rosary, as instructed by the Virgin Mary, yes, yes, and yes, you should be doing it. So pray the Rosary every day, or you're not on the team. You really have no right to complain and even comment on any of this stuff if you're not praying the rosary every day. Can we agree on that? I think we can agree on that. Awesome. Uh, special thanks to all the Patreons. Uh, mailed out, signed books, hopefully in time for Christmas. Hopefully they'll arrive by December 24th. If you'd like for me to sign books and get other cool benefits, you can support this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall. Also, I have a whole online course on the history of the Roman Rite and the Latin Mass. Do you want me to take you line by line through the Latin Mass, through the Roman Rite, NewStThomas.com? I have eight, no, nine online courses, including a course on the traditional Latin Mass. You can sign up and take it and earn your certificate at NewStThomas.com. Go check it out. Lots of new students lately. Love it. You can also listen to this podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Audible, and Amazon, I think. Yeah. And as Lefebvre said, he told us, I told you so. All right, remember, our Lord Jesus Christ is you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty, be charitable, pray for Francis, pray for the Vatican, and happy and holy Advent. Godspeed.